Our purpose is truly to lift Him up. I want to encourage you to look at the back of your um, bulletin. Is an outline for the lesson. I want you to just go ahead and jump right into this. Um, we got some announcements to share at the end too. Just some more good things. You ever watch the news and they show the uh, video footage of one of those wildfires out west? It's out of control. Seems like every other week there's another report. You ever you ever see those? You think, oh my goodness! Can you imagine living there and dealing with that? In fact, I've heard people say, I wouldn't want to live out west where they have those wildfires. Or you watch the news, especially in the fall when it's hurricane season, and they'll show that incredible footage, and, and as it's coming ashore, you think, I couldn't live at the beach. Love to go there, couldn't live there because of the hurricanes. But have you ever heard somebody who lived on the west or maybe on the coast say, I couldn't live up in Tennessee, y'all have tornadoes? Have you ever heard them say that? Because no matter where we are, we're the same with people. The meteorologists, all the emergency personnel, they try to give the warning. The fire's here, you need to get out. You know, the hurricane's about to hit land, you need to evacuate. Or the news channel, boy, they get specific now, don't they? They call out neighborhoods. You know, it's coming, it's time to take cover. But invariably, whether it's a fire or a hurricane or tornado, there's always some who ignore the warnings. Have you noticed that? Every time, there was an article in the USA Today a few years ago, it was titled, Hesitation is a Fatal Mistake. And it was talking about the fires out west, and they interviewed Sergeant Conrad Grayson. He was frustrated because these emergency personnel, they're going door to door, they're trying to tell people, you've got to get out, you've got to get out now. He was quoted as saying, we're begging people to leave. And they don't take us seriously. They want to pack up some clothes or they may want to fight the fire in the backyard with a garden hose. Another man they quoted, John Smaldridge, told about frantically warning his friends and neighbors to get out. And he said it looked like they were packing for a trip. They were saying, now where do we put those pictures? And can I go back and get my computer or my television? He said, the ones who listened to me and left the area got out. The ones who didn't died. And that particular story was referenced in a time where more than two dozen people died. Because they didn't heed the warning. They were told there's a fire coming, you've got to get out now. But they didn't do it. Because we do that, you know, I've got a few more minutes, or I've got a warden hose, or I've, I've lived through a tornado before, I'd like to get on the porch and watch them. We can all be like that to some degree. We look at them and go, what were they thinking? But we can be just like them. Last week we talked about that God tries to get our attention. And we call this God's warning system. And we talked about the emergency lights, the warning lights that pop up on our dashboard. It says, hey, check your engine. Hey, you've got to check your tires. You need to do something. You've got to do it now. And we see these lights and we wonder if God is trying to get our attention. But there's something about us. When that check engine light comes on, we think, well, maybe I can at least wait till I get home. Or maybe if it's the tire light or anything else. Or even if it's just the fuel light, we think, well, maybe I can get to where I'm going and I can get the gas later. So we talked about these warning signs. This week I want to talk about action. How do we respond? We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2. So you can open your Bibles there. The verses are going to be on the screen as well. We're going to look at Eli. You might remember Eli from the Old Testament. He was a priest in Israel for 40 years so in so many ways, Eli understood the warnings of God better than most people. I mean, he was the messenger of God. But now, it's his house that's on fire. 
And the message, the warning comes to him, and he doesn't do well with how he responds. So let's pick up 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, and let's just kind of see his house, it's on fire. Verse 12 says, Eli's sons were scoundrels. Some versions say worthless. They had no regard for the Lord. Two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. At least that's how we're told to say it. I imagine in our language it doesn't sound anything like the mom intended. But these two sons, because they're sons, they're also priests. So that is to say they're in a position of spiritual leadership for the nation of Israel. But right there it says in verse 12, they had no regard for the Lord. And it's worse than you think. We're not talking about, well, they didn't really believe in God, or they're just going through the motions, or they were late for their work, and they really weren't pulling their weight. It's not that at all. It's bad. I mean, they're stealing sacrifices that were meant for God. They're sleeping with women there who served outside the sanctuary to say scoundrels or, or worthless. It fits. And Eli was aware of this, and yet he did nothing. Look at verse 22. Now, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent meeting. So here's Eli, the priest, the father. Here's these reports. Hey, Eli, have you heard what your sons are doing? Do you know? Everybody knows. Everybody's talking about it. It's the talk of the town. The alarm is blaring. It's time for Eli to take some action. It's time for him to do something. So he decides to speak with him, and you would think he would come down hard. But look what happens, verse 23. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people around about these de wicked deeds of yours. No my, no, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? And that's about it. He asked him a couple of questions. Nothing else. Kind of a hint of a threat. Now, if the super nanny, remember the super nanny? If the super nanny got a hold of Eli, she would say, you're just being a threatening parent. You know what a threatening parent is? If you do that again, I'm going to turn this car around, Hophni. You hear me? And you never turn the car around. You do that again, Phineas, and you're going to get it. And they never get it. It's those empty threats. And that's what Eli seems to be doing. Look at verse 25. His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now, granted, Eli should have done something a lot sooner. But even now, he should have done something more so than just ask them a couple of questions. Besides that, you read on that God already decided what he was going to do. He was going to take them out. You keep reading, he's going to wipe out both of them, the whole future family, some long-term consequences, not just for the sons, but for Eli's family. So God warns Eli, a fire's coming, tornado's coming, hurricane's coming, it's time to do something. But there's no response recorded. The next chapter... Another warning comes. You remember Samuel? It's interesting to me the way this is written because the life of Samuel and what's happening with him is kind of intertwined with Eli and his sons and, he, and first this and then, then that. And so right here in the middle of this, Samuel is hearing the voice of God for the first time. Not sure who it is. So look at the next chapter. Chapter 3, verse 10. The Lord came and stood there calling as the other times, 
Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it about it to tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. And then here's little young Samuel. What do I do? Eli wanted to know, if you remember this story, Eli said, yeah, tell me. So Eli heard the news. Samuel told him. But again, Eli did nothing. He did nothing. God warned him. He sees the warning signs. He's aware. He knows it's bad. But Eli does nothing. Now, if you were to go back to when Eli started as a priest 40 years ago, this was not his intention. If you were to go back to when these young men were born, you said, is this the way you want them? This was not his goal. This is not the life that Eli envisioned for his family at all. But something happened. Something happened along the way. His house had been full of smoke for quite some time. See, so, so the question for us, even as we think about this story, is not just do you see the warning signs, do you smell the smoke, but what's it going to take for you to do something? Because I think as we look at Eli's life, we can see ourselves doing the same things he does. So just like Eli, what keeps us from really responding to these warnings? Well, let me give you a little more backstory on this. Eli was not only a priest for 40 years, but he was also a judge. If you go back and study the nation of Israel, to be a priest and a judge, you don't see that often. Those were two different people, two different roles. So basically, he's got two full-time jobs. You know what that means? He's busy. He's super busy. And you know what that's like. Even if you just have one job, but you're overextended in so many ways. You're coaching a team. You're volunteering over there. You're doing all these things. You're trying to keep a house going. You've got to mow the grass and pay the bills and buy the groceries and clean the kitchen and do the laundry. You're just trying to keep it all rolling. You've got seven days to do it all. And that's with one full-time job. So here's Eli, very busy, overextended work life. And we understand that. And what we can see here is his family life was paying the price for it. So our response to God's warnings is just like Eli's, I believe, and that's number one, procrastination. Procrastination. He had to know this. He had to see this happening. But here's what happens. We see the warning light and we say, I'll get to it later. It's kind of like the snooze on your alarm. I love a snooze on the alarm. Because when the alarm goes off, you can hit it. I know. I know it's time to get up. But also, because I hit the snooze, I have permission to sleep for nine more glorious minutes. Any of you with me on that? You know, you know what I mean? And so, but I know, I've acknowledged it. And so what we do is, we've got the warning, time to get up, but we're off the hook. Off the hook enough, you can go back to sleep. I'm good. And we do this sometimes with God's word. I know, I saw the warning light. I'm going to get to that. And that's what we do mentally. So maybe for you, it's very similar to Eli's story. You do really well at addressing the warning lights that are going on, especially at work. But what about at home? You're at home. 
And you take that phone call during dinner. You go to your kid's game, and you're replying to email. You're out on a date, and you've got to check your text messages. You're making sure that all the fires are being put out at work, and your house is filling full of smoke. You're overextended. You're busy. It's so easy to procrastinate. And we intend to do it. We want to get to it. But here's what happens. We let ourselves off the hook because we think, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to have the engine checked. I'm going to get to that. I'm going to address that. But we haven't done anything. We've just acknowledged to them and said, I'm going to get to it. You ever seen that TV show called Hoarders on A&E? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, raise your hand. Have you seen the show on TV called Hoarders? If you don't know the show, you need to watch it at least one time. They usually feature uh, two, three people who are, they've already faced some serious consequences. They're on the verge of losing their house, basically. And you've probably at least heard of it or seen the, the, the commercials for it where their house, when I say full, it's, it's more than full. I mean, there's like a one-foot pathway to get through what used to be the kitchen. And you know there's a sink and a countertop over there, but you can't see it. You go in the bedroom, and there, you know there's a bed in there, but there's just stuff everywhere. Now, most of us enjoy watching the show because we feel better about ourselves, <laughs> right? It's kind of like one time, saying and I were watching The Biggest Loser, and I had like this big old bowl of ice cream watching The Biggest Loser. I thought, something's wrong with this. But I think sometimes there's a guilty pleasure even watching the show The Hoarders. But here's what happens. Almost every time, every show I've seen, you tell me if... if they interview these people, and they say, I'm so glad you're here. I, I realize that, you know, something's got to be done. And then they'll say, I meant to do it. I'm going to get around to it. I, I know what needs to, Have you seen them do that? They say that every single show that I've seen, one of these days I'm going to get these things cleaned up. But here's the truth. By the time that show is knocking on your door... You're already in trouble. Your marriage is already gone. Sometimes your immediate family have left. You're on the verge of losing the house. And you've got maybe one or two people in your life, a good friend or maybe a family member who's still hanging on to you in spite of what you're doing. And so you watch all of this. Like you've lost your marriage. You've lost your job. You've lost your family. What's it going to take to wake you up and not see the problem? I wonder if God would look at us and say the same thing. So don't look and watch the show The Hoarders or, or Biggest Loser and think we're better because we can be... The, does God not say the same thing? What's it going to take to wake up and say, do you have to lose your family? Do you have to lose your marriage? Do you have to lose your job? Before you do something about the warning sign. I think we all know what it's like to sense God's call on your life. The Holy Spirit convicts you. Uh, somebody shared with me last week, one of the warning lights we should have put on there is, is the conscience. And for sure, that's a, that's a great warning light. The conscience convicts us when we don't do what we should. But we sense something that needs to be done, but we say, it's, it's true. I, I, I agree, but I can't do it today. I'll do that tomorrow, next week. Just remember, tomorrow is not a word you hear coming out of the Holy Spirit. It's today. It's now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Do not harden your heart. Well, here's another response that's pretty common. We see it in Eli. We see it in ourselves. And that's denial. It's denial. 
When she and I first were married, we were seniors in uh, college at Fried Hardeman. We lived in these apartment complexes. You've seen them where the stairwell is kind of a breezeway. It's covered like a roof, but it's an open stairwell. Have you seen that kind? Um, and we lived in the top floor, and it was great. It was great for us. Tiny little apartment could vacuum the whole thing from one outlet. I mean, perfect. It also had a great place for, uh, for grilling. We had this little tiny hibachi grill. And so we'd go out on the second floor. It's a concrete landing, and of course it was covered, so if it's raining. And so one day I was out there grilling burgers. You could also look out across the field, and you could see the road. And one time I was grilling, and I saw the fire truck uh, go. And I saw the lights, and I heard them coming. I wonder where the fire is. In just a few moments, they were right there. <laughs> Two firemen. I was the one. All that smoke coming off the grill, somebody called the fire department on me. I had no idea. I offered them burgers. They didn't seem to appreciate it. <laughs> I never did that again. I moved outside. Had no idea. Here's the definition for denial. Eli does nothing about his signs. So it's the failure to recognize, the refusal to acknowledge the warning of God. The reason we enter into denial we don't want to see the warnings. We don't want to hear the truth. We don't, know, we don't want to change. I told you last week about my daughter Emily and her husband John moving to Hattiesburg. They'd lived in an apartment in uh, at Harding at Searcy, and they wanted a rental house. They're going to be there for three years. They thought a little more room would be good. So they, they looked online, and they found a great prospect. They found it on Craigslist. They even sent us the link, and it looked good. It was a nice-looking house. It looked like a good neighborhood. The price was uh, uh, amazing. And so they looked into it a little bit more, and some red flags, some warning signs came up. The owner gave the story that he had a job transfer and had to hurriedly move to Atlanta. And so he could not meet them in person. They could see the pictures online, but they could go and look in the windows and see if they liked it, then they could sign the form and send their deposit and first month's rent, and then he would send them the keys. Well, they weren't comfortable with, with all of that, and so they did a little more research, and they realized that it was a scam. You've heard of that kind of scam before. The house was for rent, but not by that person. It was somebody else. It was a good house in a good neighborhood, but the rent was a whole lot more. Thankfully, they were wise enough to see that. They were disappointed, but they were also relieved. you know why scams like that work? Why do people get caught up in that? Because they don't want to believe the truth. They see the same things. As I was telling you that story, I could see it. You were going, mm-hmm, I could tell you, that's a scam. Yeah, because you know. So you can see it in somebody else's life, but you don't see it in your own, not nearly as easily. Because you don't want to see the truth. It's the way we are. So denial is a refusal to acknowledge, to recognize the warnings of God. And we stay in denial, but the warnings continue and continue. To, we're finally faced to deal with it. How many of you have heard people say, or maybe even said yourself, I had to hit rock bottom? Have you heard that phrase? It's like everything had to go wrong. It's like everything, you know, so bad. I had to hit rock bottom. Then you could see it for what it is. And we understand that because rock bottom is a jarring Shock. Usually by that time, it's somebody with addiction or somebody with some other serious kind of issue where they've lost their job, maybe lost some relationships, and maybe lost all their money. And so that is, there is the jar, like, I've got to get help. I've got to do something. 
So we go through this denial because you don't want to acknowledge the reality of the situation. I think God, though, would say you don't have to hit rock bottom. That can be the ultimate warning sign. But God would say, do you see the smoke? Do you hear the firemen knocking at your door? Do you see the warning light on your dash saying, hang on, something needs some attention? You don't have to wait until you lose everything. Until you hit rock bottom. Look at another response. 1 Samuel 3.13. Here's what the text says. And he failed to restrain them. Eli failed to restrain them. That says so much, doesn't it? He did nothing. He was told about it. He sees the warnings. God told him, you've got to do something, but he doesn't do anything. So the word for this is passivity. We don't talk about this very much, but it, it's very common. Especially for husbands and, and fathers can be tempted to be passive. Like Eli, he shows us he did nothing. Here's what we do. We see God's warning lights and we say, I'm not going to do nothing because... I'm sure everything's going to work out. It's okay. It's not that bad. So we're passive. So it's easier if we just look the other way. It's easier if we don't acknowledge that there's a problem. And you see studies like this that happen in other areas. The, the very person who has someone, they have a history of cancer in their family, and they're least likely to go to any kind of cancer screening. The person who maybe has some financial trouble and you see that they're the last one that want to take care of their bills and balance their checkbook. Why? Because there's a part of us that says doing nothing is what we do best. But that's not how you deal with fires. When the fire is coming, you can't do nothing. So let me share a few cues of this of why Eli was passive. Just a couple of verses if you want to fill in the blanks there. Look how Eli responds to Samuel. The first one is 1 Samuel 3 verse 18. Where when, when Samuel tells Eli what's going to happen, Eli's reply, He is the Lord, let him do what is good in his eyes. Now that sounds like amazingly full of faith. Acknowledging God and His, his ability to do what is right, what is good. But I don't think that's spiritual. At all. It sounds spiritual. But really, it's passive. What's the difference in that? And as Doris Day said, case Sarah, Sarah. What will be, will be. Throw a little God in there and it sounds spiritual. But I'm not seeing anything spiritual here. How do we know of God? From beginning to the end of Scripture. A lot of examples where God's warning comes. God said, this is what I'm going to do. And the people repent. They change their hearts. They say, God, I'm sorry. And God changes His mind. Classic example. Nineveh. The Nineveh here, the king understands what's going to happen, how bad it is. He said, nobody eats. No people, no animals, nobody. We're all going to pray and fast that maybe God will not bring upon us this curse. Look at Jonah 3.10 and compare these two. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction He had threatened. When God saw what they did, they didn't say, they didn't say, well, He is God, whatever the Lord deems best. They said they turned from their evil ways. God acknowledged that. Had compassion. And God changed His mind. How much different is that than Eli's response here? Eli, here's what's coming. He says, he's the Lord. And the Lord will do what the Lord deems best. 
That's not spiritual. That's passive. I think he's hiding behind that. Instead, what God was looking for, I believe, was a broken heart. God, I messed up. My sons are messing up. My family's in shambles. I've not been leading them. I'm sorry. I need your mercy. I surrender. I think that would have been more spiritual. I think that's what God was listening for. Well, another clue of why Eli was passive comes from chapter 2, verse 29. For God asked Eli, why do you honor your sons more than me? Why do you honor your sons more than me? And this tells you something about why we're passive in certain areas. Because we're honoring something more than God. You remember our study of idols? This is like another case in point about that. Eli does nothing about his sons. And in doing nothing about his sons, he he reveals that he honors his sons more than God. Same happens in a dating relationship. You get the warning sign, but when you ignore it, you're telling God your boyfriend matters more than God. God warns you about your gossip, about your complaining. And you get the warnings, but you keep going. You're under your alcohol more than God. God warns you about your work. We talked about that. So you get these warning signs. Things are out of balance. You see the warning lights on the dash, and you do nothing. You honor your job more than your Lord. You see how this works? I think the number one reason why Eli was so passive, I think is in verse 22. It says, now Eli was very old. Eli was very old. I wonder if Eli thought it's too late. Or if Eli thought of himself as being too old. Sometimes we say I'm too old when really what we're confessing is I'm too lazy. I'm too tired. Too much water under the bridge maybe. My guess is no matter your age, no matter your age, there are still some people who think that way. You agree with it. Yeah, it's a problem. I I, I see the fire. I know it's a problem. You see the warning lights. In fact, you've been aware of them for many years. But what are you expecting me to to do about it now? You feel like it's too late. It's out of your hands. If you'd heard about it five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, then maybe you could have done something. But what now? Now you say, my kids are too old. My My marriage is too broken. My dad is too overwhelming. My friend is too angry. My reputation is shot. My addictions are too powerful. My relationship with God has just grown too cold. It's not that I don't disagree with you. It's like, what do I do now? I'm too old. I'm too tired. Things have gone too far. And there's a sense where that's right. You are too old. Too tired. It's beyond you. You can't Fix it. That's true. But what if God says, but I can fix it? The last blank on your outline, it's on the screen. One of my favorite things about God, the good news, He can redeem anything. Anything. Anyone. At any time. Colossians 1.13 says, For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Does it mean there will not be pain? Doesn't mean there will not be some consequences or it's going to be an easy road, but He can redeem anything. It's never too late for God. The truth is, the Bible tells us from opening to closing that we cannot fix ourselves. Would it shock you if I said you may believe more in Buddha than you do in Jesus? Did you know that there is a story in Buddhist literature 
that is parallel to the story of the prodigal son. We just studied that a couple of weeks ago. We all know the story of the prodigal son. But in the Buddhist rendition of that, the son goes off, spends his money making poor decisions, and decides to come back home. But instead of the ending being like the way Jesus taught it, the way it happens when the, the son comes back to the father, the way Buddhist teaches that, the father says, because of what you've done, you're going to spend 20 years in servitude shoveling excrement. 20 years. You've got to prove yourself. You've got to earn your way. What I want to know, tell me this, how can the pagan king of Nineveh understand God and His call to repentance when some of us who have grown up as Christians all of our lives think more like Buddha? It's too late. I can't do anything. God would say, you're absolutely right. So let Him. Don't put it off. Don't deny it. Don't be passive. You see the lights? You take action. So our response, we're going to stand and sing a song. If for you that's the confession of sin, we want to be here to hear your confession because we've done the same. If you're ready to confess that Jesus is Lord and put Him on in baptism, we've got the water ready. But maybe the response is not public. Maybe for you it's private. It's, maybe it's somebody that personally you need to go and to confess. Maybe it's someone you need to ask accountability from. Maybe as a family you need to sit down and say, we're going to do some things differently. Maybe there's a phone call you need to make. Maybe there's something in your life you need to get rid of, throw away. Action. Response. If we can pray for you or help you in any way, why don't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you.